This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Moment of Clarity with comedian Lee Camp, The David Pakman Show, Democracy Now!, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, The Majority Report, Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine, and Activism Today from MoveOn.org. We can't let last night's debate pass without focusing a little bit more on what would have been insane times headline news for weeks. And that was that most of the candidates, the GOP candidates at last night's debate, agree that we should target and kill the families of terrorists. And those who won't go that far at least say this, the, the concern about killing civilians, that's from a different time. We need to, we need to not worry about that. We need to be tough. We need to be hard with them. You're going to see that. We've got videos from a couple of the different candidates. We're going to start with uh, Donald Trump. I'm Josh Jacob from Georgia Tech. Recently, Donald Trump mentioned that we must kill the families of ISIS members. However, this violates the principle of distinction between civilians and combatants in international law. So my question is, how would intentionally killing innocent civilians set us apart from ISIS? Mr. Trump, we have to be much tougher. We have to be much stronger than we've been. We have people that know what's going on. You take a look at just the attack in California the other day. There were numerous people, including the mother, that knew what was going on. They saw a pipe bomb sitting all over the floor. They saw ammunition all over the place. They knew exactly what was going on. I would be very, very firm with families. And frankly, that will make people think because they may not care much about their lives, but they do care, believe it or not, about their families' lives. That got applause. That's unbelievable. Applause. So uh, let's break that down. First, I will be very firm with their families, meaning firm. You'll kill them. That's what, that's not man you, enough to say it. Yeah, that's what you said earlier. That's what the student asked you about. You said you would kill their families. So I, that's a new term. I'm going to be very firm. Kill you. So then, the next question that obviously arises is this, the mom knew. By the way, he doesn't know that at all. No. Okay. Investigators are looking into exactly who knew and didn't know about the San Bernardino shooting. There was a neighbor apparently that bought some of the weapons for them so that they should investigate that. But the, the investigators have said nothing about the mom knowing anything. Yeah. Trump made that up. But according to his plan, then he should execute her. Are you going to kill that mom in San Bernardino? I, answer the question, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to be very, very tough. What does that mean, very tough? So you, and, and that line there, they, they may not care much about their lives, but they do care, believe it or not, about their families' lives. Yeah, that that's what mobsters say. Yeah, you know, but like the worst kind of mobsters, uh, the the worst kind of drug gangs, be like, hey, you know what? We're not going to just kill you. We're going to kill your family members. Yeah, that's what Pablo Escobar says. That's what Abu Bakr al Baghdadi says. Yeah. So now you, you sink to his level, and you get wild applause from the Republican base. Yeah. He, you know, according to online polling focus groups, Donald Trump won that debate by saying horrendous, horrific things like that. Yeah, yeah, and look, Hugh Hewitt at least uh, offered, asked some follow-up questions, trying to have them be clear. I mean, you're going to see that when we go to Carson. But, like, he wasn't even willing to say there, we'll kill them. No, we'll be tough. We'll be strong. Stop being a wuss. Say what you're going to do. They love to say, we can't possibly defeat ISIS because Obama won't say radical, des deadly, Islamic, radioactive terrorism. He won't say the term, so we can't win. You're saying you're going to be strong, but you can't even say you're going to bomb and kill these families. So why don't you, why don't you uh, listen to your own points there? Um, yeah, and uh, look, they had the follow-up question of uh, where he said, uh, oh, so they get to kill us and we can't kill them? 
missing the point that it's the terrorists that kill us, not the terrorist families. And he's there saying he's frustrated that we don't get to act exactly like terrorists. Now, why should we be why should we be chastised in any way for wanting to kill innocents? And that was a demonstration when you heard the clapping there. We talked, I believe, on the show yesterday that for all that people love to say that uh, there's something about Islam that makes you fine with jihad and fine with killing innocents. We had the polls, international polls, showing that about 50% of Americans think that the, the killing of civilians is justified, and the average in the Middle East and North Africa is 14%. And you saw in that audience it might have been more than 50%. Apparently, something about being a right-wing Christian means that you think it's okay to kill uh, civilians. So I, I need to clarify two things here before we get to the other candidates. Uh, number one, uh, in that poll that John's talking about, it's a Gallup poll, it was not collateral damage. They didn't ask about that. They said the intentional ki killing and targeting of civilians. And in this case, that's exactly what Donald Trump's talking about. He's not saying, oh, well, if we happen to kill their families accidentally, well, that'd be a shame, but we were trying to get the terrorists. Yeah. He's saying, no, we should target their families because they might care about their families even if they don't care about their own lives. He says to target them. Now, which 50% of the country you think might be in favor of that? Could it be that it might be more heavily weighted towards Republicans who are like, yes, target and kill civilians, yeah. the goddamn terrorists. Speaking of which, that's the second point. They keep saying, let's kill the terrorist families. But when we drop a bomb from the sky in the middle of Syria, are we positive that the person down there is a terrorist and that the family that we're killing is a terrorist family? Or are we just sure that there are terrorists somewhere in Syria yeah. and we got some sort of signal intelligence telling us there's a cell phone or a weapon somewhere down there? When they say kill the terrorist families, they just mean let's kill the families down there somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So they, they, if you know exactly where the terrorists are, we could kill just the terrorists and be done with it. Yeah. You don't know where they are. You mean kill random families in the area. Yeah. Yeah. I love that the, the party of family values has become the party of let's use the fact that they value their family to kill their family. So sad. Family values we have. It's just a memory in your mind. When you go bad, there's no love. It's your moment of clarity. Many of you probably know the famous poem. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Well, for those who don't know of it, there's a famous poem that goes... First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. It's meant as a cautionary tale in which we allow the persecution of the other 
until it's us, until it's too late. Apparently, Donald Trump used it as an instruction manual. He's going through the whole list before we even get to the fucking general election. Mexicans, immigrants, Chinese, Muslims, women, disabled people. You have to pace yourself, Donald. At this rate, you'll be on to Jews before spring. You'll want to imprison all black people in June, and then you'll move on to cute pets and elderly in, the, in, in, in August. Pace yourself, man. Look, get out a calendar and don't schedule the persecution of more than one race or group of people per quarter. Okay? This is not a sprint. Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither is white supremacy. It's great to be joined once again by Tim Wise, anti-racist educator and author of six books, including White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son. Tim, we've been following with great interest the impact that Donald Trump's candidacy in the Republican primary has had on so of sort of coalescing and catalyzing the white supremacist movement. We've seen endorsements from people like David Duke, former KKK member. We've seen the white supremacist website Stormfront have to literally upgrade servers to account for the traffic that is coming to them as a result of the Trump presidency. Talk to us about your analysis of Trump and sort of coalescing this racist vote. Well, you know, this has been a long-term political project for the far right, going back really to the Wallace days in the late 60s, uh, and certainly, you know, extending through, let's say, uh, the David Duke campaigns in Louisiana in 90 and 91 for U.S. Senate and governor, which I was involved in uh, defeating him at that time in an organization there. Um, and I think what the right's been trying to do is find a candidate who would do the same thing Duke did and the same thing Wallace did, which is scapegoat people of color, scapegoat uh, religious minorities, scapegoat poor folks. In the case of Donald Trump, scapegoat immigrants, which is something Duke also did for problems that they did not create because part of the right-wing backlash to the civil rights movement, the right-wing backlash to the women's movement, the right-wing backlash to just about every form of social progress in the past hundred years has been about doing that, has been about taking real legitimate economic problems that working-class folks face and then putting a face on those problems that is brown, that is black, that is foreign. Um, so it isn't just the overt white nationalists, though I'm sure they're very pleased to have someone like Trump who never wore um, a swastika or a Klan robe uh, and did not stand in the schoolhouse door like Wallace and say segregation forever right. to be able to coalesce some of those views. Having said that, it's also really galvanizing not just those folks, but a larger mass of white folks who are gripped in nostalgia for an America that they look at very fondly because they can, because it worked for them, uh, and they see change. They see cultural change, economic change, political change, and part of the reactionary mind is a fear of ambiguity, a fear of uncertainty, a fear of change. That's the thing I think we as Americans have to get our heads around. It isn't enough 
to talk about the connections to white nationalists and white supremacists. It's really about how Trump is galvanizing white anxiety in a way that the Tea Party a few years ago could only have dreamt of. This may be a sort of esoteric question, and maybe there is no no uh, productive answer to it, but do you feel that the Trump ideas around these issues are working more out of fear and anxiety or out of anger? I think those things go together. I think we have a perfect storm of white anxiety in this country. I wrote about that in my book, Dear White America, four years ago. And that perfect storm was created by four factors that were working together. One was the election of a president of color with a strange, exotic name, um, you know, who many didn't even view as American. And it challenged the idea of what the president should look like. The second factor was the economic insecurity caused by the recession in 07-08, which was confronting white folks with double-digit unemployment for the first time since the Great Depression. Uh, then you had the cultural change. Now we have a popular culture, thoroughly multicultural, uh, so it's not in the hands of the same folks it always was. And then finally, the demographic shift, whereby in 30 years, half the country will be folks of color, half will be white. All of that was happening at the same time, which I think generated white anxiety. Now, the anger comes from that anxiety, because if you have always been someone who was able to look at you and yours and say, we are Americans, we're what an American is, we're the prototype, the floor model of an American, and now you're confronted with a reality that you're going to have to share that designation with people who don't look like you, don't pray like you, have different customs than you. That can generate not only anxiety and fear, but also a lot of anger and hostility and the sense that you're being victimized. This white victimization, which David Duke and white supremacists have been playing upon with you know phony arguments and phony analysis and bad data for a long time, has now become mainstream. So the problem, and we said this during the anti Duke campaigns in the early 90s is not so much Duke as it was Dukeism. Now it's not so much Trump as it is Trumpism. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow has been among those to note the similarities in rhetoric between Donald Trump and George Wallace's 1968 presidential campaign. This clip is from her show. It begins with George Wallace. You know what you are? You're a little punk. That's all you are. You haven't got any guts. You've got too much hair on your head, partner. you got a load on your mind. That's right. Boy, what a bunch of losers, I'll tell you. You are a loser. You really are a loser. Now, get him out. Presidential candidate Donald Trump in November, a Black Lives Matter protester at a Trump rally in Birmingham, Alabama, was kicked and punched by Trump supporters as Trump yelled, get him the hell out of here. Trump later defended his supporters, telling Fox News, quote, maybe the protester should have been roughed up because it was absolutely disgusting what he was doing.
Um, I want to turn to George Wallace's daughter, Peggy Wallace Kennedy, who told BuzzFeed she compared her father to Donald Trump, saying, quote, there are a great deal of similarities as it relates to their style and political strategies, the two of them. They have adopted the notion that fear and hate are the two greatest motivators of voters. She went on to say, quote, they both can draw a crowd and work up a crowd. My father was a very fiery and emotional speaker and was able to tap into the fears of the poor and working class white people. But Peggy Wallace Kennedy said her father may have actually been less extreme than Trump in some respects. She said, quote, I think my father had more self-restraint and respect for the institutions of government than Trump does, she said, adding, quote, I think my father understood the limitation of the executive branch of government where I don't think Trump does. And I think daddy, even though he used coded language to use racial themes, he never attacked a culture based on their religion and race. He used coded language to suggest the racial themes, but he never specifically attacked a group of people based on their religion and race. Um, still with us, Tom Turnipseed, the national director of Alabama governor George Wallace's presidential campaign in 1968, uh, since become a civil rights attorney. Your thoughts on what um, Wallace's daughter said and your own uh, feelings and transformation around George Wallace? Well, I, I agree with her 100 percent. It's real interesting. Is well, Governor Wallace's f- number one media target, believe it or not, was the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And so Donald Trump jumped on the New York Times last night. Did you notice that? I don't believe anything in the New York Times. And, uh, but anyway, Governor Wallace was a poor kid, you know, middle-class kid from southeast Alabama. And uh, he, 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 at first, he was just a populist, you know, without racism. He, he ran for governor and was endorsed by, believe it or not, the NAACP and his opponent, John Patterson, was endorsed by the, the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, and Patterson won. And then I understand, I went over there then, that Wallace told one of his confidants, one of his staff people, that I'll never be uh, out inward again. And so, from then on, you know, he, you know, stood in the schoolhouse door and blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, he, he, he wasn't, Economically, even though what he did was just terrible, you know, as, fight, as far as fighting, you know, about the, the, the separation of, you know, segregation for that and so forth and making those speeches and standing in the schoolhouse door, he put more money into the poor school districts, which included African Americans too, and community colleges. And than any other governor ever has. He was like an economic populist. And, and, Tom, and I'm Turner not saying that anything of, about him standing. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, 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 and also, one of the things I'd, uh, I'd like to note about him also, that he was a lot more qualified to run for president than Donald Trump was. He, had, he, he was not only a governor. Uh, he had been a judge uh, in Alabama. He'd been an assistant attorney general. Oh, yeah. He'd held public office and knew something about the runnings of government, whereas as uh, some critics, even within the Republican Party, have said of Donald Trump, he's never held public office or, or served in the military or come up the military as some presidential, uh, as some presidents have as mil- from uh, military commanders to become right. president. I was going to say... He's I mean, well qualified. Uh, J.K., Judge Chestnut, he was one of the best lawyers. He's an African-American guy from Selma. 
It said, and I was on TV with him a few years ago, said that Governor Wallace was the fairest judge that he'd ever been before. And this guy's African-American from Selma. <laughs> The qualifi- to, to have qualifications, the idea of government qualifications is a lofty one, Juan. I mean, we're, it seems to me we're living in a moment where what Grover Norquist, the right-wing ideologue, said over a decade ago that the Republicans' right wing wants to take government and strangle it, drown it in a bathtub. Now they want to trash it. It doesn't seem to me that Trump is hurting from his lack of government experience. But back to what uh, Mr. Turnipseed was saying, I mean, it seemed the struggle in this country over the last many decades has been one between fear and hope, between hate and justice. And what you saw last night, Donald Trump took on the mantle of hate, took on the mantle of grievance, took on the mantle of anger. And what does he do with it? He doesn't talk to people about what could be. He trashes people around him. He foments division. And again, I would just say, I do think there are a few parallels between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I could see Donald Trump heading into Ohio, for example, and talking about trade and really speaking to people whose lives have been dislocated and damaged by trade deals. But Bernie Sanders is not saying turn on each other. He's saying in a kind of old-fashioned solidarity, turn toward each other. And I think that's been lost in our politics on the Republican side. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. They're the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, they source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed to create new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time, all with no food waste. Customers can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people. And of course, they have a vegetarian option. We received our first insulated package full of delicious meals this past week and started digging in so I can happily attest to their quality and freshness. Our favorite so far has been a zucchini risotto with mozzarella and fresh basil. And I've got a special offer for you if you want to try them out for yourself. You can save $35 off your first week of deliveries. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter the offer code BEST when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com and and use the offer code BEST. Donald Trump uh, is throwing everybody out of his uh, rallies that he doesn't agree with, um, that vaguely seems to be protesting him. We've covered this on uh, the show before. Our own reporters um, uh, for, at TYT Politics have shown people being thrown out of Trump events that didn't say anything, and that might have even been on his side. There's like a witch hunt going on at these rallies. Well, he's in Georgia, and 30 students from Valdosto State University decide to go and protest. But how are they going to protest? Um, they're just going to stand up and not say anything to a speech. Now, wait a minute. How would they know that they're even protesting? Oh, right. They're all black. So let's find out what happens. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, now you saw at the end they raised their fists and obviously this commotion is they're being thrown out. But in the beginning, when they're there, they didn't say anything, they just stood up. The only reason that anybody threw, knew to threw them out is they're black. <laughs> Standing while black, you gotta go. You can't be caught being black at a Trump rally. So that's what they got kicked out for. Now when they're asked about it, the Secret Service told CNN that they were not directly involved in removing the students from the event, but one agent oversaw the students' removal. Well, that would appear to indicate that they were involved. Okay, an agent told CNN that the students uh, were asked to leave by the host committee and local law enforcement. So this is what happens, by the way. We just pass it around like, wasn't me, it was the host committee. No, it was the local law enforcement. No, it was the Secret Service. And they just pass it around. So who's going to be held responsible for... Uh, people kicking people out for exercising their First Amendment rights? Nobody. One me, me, it was him. Um, a Secret Service agent says, we do not escort protesters or disruptors out of events. Hmm. Okay, we'll get back to that. Uh, he says, if a group at an event protests, uh, it does not become an issue with the United States Secret Service unless our protectee is threatened. I don't know if he was just threatened by the mere presence of 30 black students. Uh, they said, uh, according to the protesters, uh, the people who threw them out said, this is Trump's property. It's a private event. But I paid my tuition to be here. Can you imagine you're paying all that tuition at a college? This guy comes in to do a rally at your college, and then they throw you out just for being there, right? And they say, no, no, no. It's, it's, a pro it's Trump's property now. How's it Trump's property? You know, look, I understand that maybe he paid for the hall, etc. But if I'm a student going there, that protest was the least of what you could do. Now, I'm going to switch to the next story here because the Secret Service told me that they don't escort anybody out. They don't care. They're not trying to enforce what Donald Trump says. Really? Uh, because there's a Time reporter at a different rally, um, and his name is Christopher Morse. He's actually very well known. And uh, and let's take a look at what happened to him when he stepped outside of the pen, the, the holding pen they have for the press, just a little bit. That was a Secret Service agent who picked up a member of the press by the neck and choke slammed. And that is confirmed by the other reporters. I know the video started rolling right as he was slamming him down. Other reporters at the scene said yes, picked him up by the neck and threw him to the ground. And then you see the reporter uh, kicking back a little bit. And then, of course, the right wingers are like, oh, see, he kicked back. What would you do if somebody slammed you to the ground like that? Wait, Secret Service, I didn't think you threw out anybody. What, what happened? Now, see, the, understand why this is so important, why it's so scary. Before, it was Donald Trump speaking like a fascist. Then his supporters at rallies started assaulting protesters, and that was his brown shirts acting like fascists. Now he's got the government working for him acting like fascists. Whether it's the local cops, it's the Secret Service in this case. Hey, you know what? Let me show you uh, the reporter after he got body slammed explaining why uh, the Secret Service did this to him. So you're just trying to go and cover the protest and... I just, I stepped 18 inches out of the pen and he grabbed me by the neck and started choking me and he slammed me to the ground. 
if you step 18 inches out of the cage that they have for the press, now the Secret Service is slamming you to the ground. And, Matt, and this is before he even wins. This is before he wins the Republican nomination or the presidency. Imagine what happens if he wins the presidency. How will he use his power? This is the tip of the iceberg. Imagine the frickin' iceberg. Now, Morris told CNN that he never touched the agent in the beginning and did not plan to press charges. No, 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 for Christ's sake, press charges! Somebody's got to put an end to this. How many people have I seen assaulted at Trump rallies? How many videos have we shown you guys of people brutally assaulted, thrown to the ground, and, and while people are chanting, you know, whether it's USA, USA, Trump, 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 or in some cases, allusions to white power, etc., while blacks are being assaulted, Latinos are being assaulted, one time a woman was thrown to the ground, people are being removed, now members of the press. Somebody press charges! And cops, you're not supposed to be on the side of the fascists, you're supposed to be protecting the citizens and the press. That's what our Constitution demands. That's what your job is. You should do that job instead of being Trump's brown shirts. Yes, I said it. It's true. Look at what they're doing. If you let him get away with this, what are they going to do to the press next? What are they going to do to you next? Fascism. This topic has arisen now because a number of commentators have used the term in regard to Donald Trump, or at least where Donald Trump might be leading folks. So I wanted to make sure we all know what fascism has been so we can determine whether or not we face that danger now, and if so, where, and if so, what might be done about it. Fascism. Let's talk about what it has been, and we will, of course, have in mind the great examples in recent history of fascism. Germany, under Hitler, Italy, under Mussolini, and Japan uh, in the years leading up to World War II. In all of these countries, and elsewhere, Spain has had that, uh, other countries too, but in those major examples, we have a problem that, that is fundamental. Capitalism, sooner or later, and it usually doesn't take very long, yields a dominant economic position to major capitalist enterprises. They gather into their hands the profits of the system, uh, huge concentrations of wealth, which they use to control uh, the political system as best they can. But they are always a relatively small number of people. So, in order to stay in power, if a small number of people have the power and the wealth concentrated in their hands, they know that the mass of people are going to feel aggrieved, resentful, bitter, envious, whatever words you like, they face a continuing danger to their position. Capitalism concentrates the wealth in their hands, but it's insecure. 
in order to live in that world, to stay safe, to hold on to their wealth, they try to control the political parties, they try to stimulate a way of thinking in the population that makes all of this acceptable. They refer to themselves not as the people who've concentrated wealth in their hands, but perhaps uh, a nicer phrase like job creators since nobody can go to work without the tools and equipment which these folks have gathered into their hands. That's how capitalism works. Instead of being angry that all the wealth that has been produced by workers is concentrated in the hands of capitalists, you turn the problem around and say how grateful we are to the capitalists for having the equipment and the enterprises to give the people jobs. It's a little crazy, but that's the way ideology works. They need, in short, a mass base. They need to make alliances with other people, the capitalists do, or otherwise their political situation is too dangerous, too vulnerable, too fragile. That's why you see, for example, in the United States, a difficult, tense alliance between big business and capitalists on the one hand and the religious fundamentalist community uh, on the other. And with conservatives in terms of social values and so on. When these alliances work, when the ideology works, when controlling the political parties with your money works, well then capitalism is, you might say, stable. But periodically capitalism undermines its own stability. One way it does that is with its business cycles. Periods like the last four or five years when there's massive unemployment, massive suffering and decline of people's standard of living and all of that. At that point, capitalism may enter into a really difficult time because its mass base breaks down. It, it can't rely on the ideology. It can't rely on the alliances because people are suffering too much and they're beginning to turn on the capitalists and capitalism, just like they've done in the United States in the last five or six years. At that point, in some situations, the capitalists get really scared. They have, their alliances aren't working, their control of the political situation is eroding, and therefore they see themselves in danger. At that point, they may initiate, or if there's one available, turn to a mass movement that they think can protect their interests. In Germany, this was the Nazi party, a party that went from fringe to the government because the business community said, we can't preserve our capitalist system on ideology alone, on political parties and parliaments alone. We have to clean house. We have to control the economy from the top down. Let's do it by merging the government and big business. That's what fascism is. When you do away with democratic procedures, you do away with the parliament, except as a theater. You do away with civil liberties and civil rights. The government becomes a powerful security force, making sure capitalism survives a rough time. That's why it's not surprising that Fascism in Italy came when the Italian economy was suffering a downturn. It came to Hitler in the midst of the Great Depression, etc. 
fascism is when capitalism cannot rule any longer except with the iron fist of a disciplinary top-down society. And we have to see whether that's what we face. I'm going to tell all you fascists you may be surprised. People all over this world are getting organized to bound to lose. You fascists are bound to lose. Race hatred cannot stop us. But this is when Trump is asked directly about campaign, about the violence in his campaign. And I want you to listen carefully to how he responds to this and how he pivots from it. He's not just ignoring the question. He's actually rebuking the question with the way he pivots. This is number two. I want to start with you in this block. Earlier today, a man was arrested and charged with assault after sucker punching a protester in the face at your rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina. This is hardly the first incident of violence breaking out at one of your rallies. Today, Hillary Clinton, your potential general election opponent, clearly indicated she sees this as an issue for the campaign. She said, quote, this kind of behavior is repugnant. We set the tone for our campaigns. We should encourage respect, not violence. Do you believe that you've done anything to create a tone where this kind of violence would be encouraged? I hope not. I truly hope not. I will say this. Uh, we have 25, 30,000 people. You've seen it yourself. People come with tremendous passion and love for the country. And when they see protest, in some cases, you know, you're mentioning one case, which I haven't seen, I heard about, which I don't like. But when they see what's going on in this country, they have anger that's unbelievable. They have anger. They love this country. They don't like seeing bad trade deals. They don't like seeing higher taxes. They don't like seeing... Pause it. The response to bad trade deals, the response to whatever it was, higher prices is to shove or punch black people or to yell uh, F Islam, uh, Christianity is the one true uh, highest religion or whatever was that guy? That's the response? Well, at least we have uh, Donald Trump to uh, channel their anger in the right way. Loss of their jobs, where our jobs have just been devastated. And I know, I mean, I see it. There is some anger. There's also great love for the country. It's a beautiful thing in many respects, but I certainly do not condone that at all, Jake. Some of your critics point to quotes that you've made at these debate, uh, at these rallies, including... Um... I pause it. So, so Trump says, I, but I don't condone it. I've just explained all the reasons why people are attacking black people and Muslims uh, because they're just angry in general about uh, things that have nothing to do with those people. But I don't condone it. And then Jake says, but you do condone it. February 23rd, I'd like to punch him in the face, referring to a protester. February 27th, in the good old days, they'd have ripped him out of that seat so fast. February 1st, knock the crap out of him, would you? Seriously, okay, just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise, I promise. Pause it. There you have the Republican audience. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. This is not about Donald Trump. This is about the, uh, this is about the Republican the Republican base. Half that audience cheers when Trump says, 
uh, rip them out of that seat, pull them out of there. If you, you uh, do whatever you want to them, if he sues you, I'll cover your legal expenses. And they're cheering. We have some protesters who are bad dudes. They have done bad things. They are swinging. They are really dangerous. And they get in there and they start hitting people. And, and we had a couple big, strong, powerful guys doing damage to people. Not only the loudness, the loudness I don't mind, but doing serious damage. And if they're going to be taken out, I, I be honest, I mean, we have to run something. And it's not me. It's usually. OK, so he's lying. Obviously, I mean, there's not been big bad dudes um, who have been swinging uh, when they were shoving that um, that woman around. She was just basically being shoved around and uh, protecting herself. She wasn't swinging at anybody. When this guy was walking up the steps and gets cold cocked, uh, he wasn't doing anything except for being uh, walking, uh, being escorted out. The, even the people who were escorting him out weren't even having to hold his hand. As he was walking out, so I mean, uh, Trump's lying, but now he's sort of he's pivoting. Uh, but I had nothing to do with that. The municipal government, the police, because I don't have guards all over these stadiums. I mean, we fill up stadiums. Uh, it's usually the police, and and by the way, speaking of the police, we should pay our respects to the police because they pause are it for a second. I want you to go back twenty uh, ten seconds. So Trump says it's not even me who's doing this theoretical beating of the uh the protesters it's the municipal police who are doing it which of course is not the case but then he immediately pivot he goes from blaming the police for beating up the protesters to realizing wait a second <laughs> i just said the word police i know this is a way in which i can actually turn this against the protesters and even expand on the racism i'm being accused of by saying the real problem in this country is Black Lives Matter movement. This is what this is a reference to. I mean, we have to run something. And it's not me. It's usually the municipal government, the police, because I don't have guards all over these stadiums. I mean, we fill up stadiums. Uh, it's usually the police. And, and by the way, speaking of the police, we should pay our respects to the police because they are taking tremendous abuse of this country. And they do a phenomenal job. So we should pay... We should truly give our police, they're incredible people, we should give them a great deal more respect than they receive. Senator Cruz. All right, so there it is. I mean, and then this is where it starts getting, um, what, what is disturbing about this, I mean, aside from the obvious parts, and what sort of brings it into another is here's his one sort of full-on frontal opportunity to disavow this stuff, to say, to express some regret, and... In many respects, he doubles down. And you also witness Jake Tapper, who, good for him for bringing this up and introducing it. Um, maybe the format doesn't allow for a little bit more follow-up there. But then you also hear the Republicans cheering. And this is all, again, in the night of the backdrop of the Republican Party basically saying, yes, it's okay, we get it, you're going to be our nominee, and we will be there for you. When they all say, you know, I'll support you, they all shook his hand afterwards. You know, no one's no one takes an opportunity to criticize him for any of this stuff. I mean, that's what um, that's what's happening here.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So there have been a lot of violence in uh, Donald Trump events uh, recently, but in one rally, it got super violent. We even have an arrest. Wait till you see the guy who did the punching and what he has to say. That comes at the end, and it is atrocious. But first, I want to give you full context. Uh, Rod Weber was there. He goes to many of these uh, rallies, and he uh, wrote about it on Daily Coast. He said, at this particular rally, within 18 minutes that I was there, it looked to be about one ejection per minute and a lot of hateful shouting in the process. He explains that they uh, removed a pregnant woman. And a blind woman. Actually, on that one, we've got tape. Watch this. You're legally blind? Yeah. The way you guide someone, if you're being a sighted guide, is you put your hand down and I'd grab your elbow like this. But she wouldn't let me do that. Like, she had me by the hand and was sort of pulling me. Okay. Yeah, that's very classy. Uh, but we're just getting warmed up here. Uh, wait till you see the guy getting punched. Uh, but one more uh, other example for you. It actually comes from Rod. He wore a T-shirt that said, love is the answer. So obviously he had to be removed from a rally that focuses on making America hate again. Uh, so here's a picture of him getting removed. Uh, and then as he's getting removed, Donald Trump says, do you see what he's got written on his very dirty undershirt? You see, it says love is the answer. And in a certain way, he's right. Love, love's a great thing. Love's the answer. He's got written there. I wonder who he makes love with there. Oh, forget it. Because for Donald Trump, it's always about sex. This is the guy who in 2004 said, Nancy Reagan, here's what I think of her. She's not very beautiful. What does that have to do with anything, right? He sees a guy that says love is the answer in the middle of a hate rally, and he goes, I wonder who that guy gets laid by. <laughs> this guy's running for president. I mean, I get it if he's a reality show star, which he was, but now he's running for president and winning on the Republican side. Unbelievable. So now in an earlier uh, Vegas rally or Nevada rally, when one protester was... Uh, 
protesting, Trump had said, quote, I'd like to punch him in the face. Well, his fans have now taken him up on it, so uh, that brings us uh, to the videos from North Carolina. So we've got um, a black protester here, and he's going to be, as being, as he's being escorted out, he's going to give the middle finger to the crowd and then watch what one of the people attending the rally does. All the Now, in the beginning there, it looked like he just pushed him a little bit. No, 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 he punched him. Take another look at it from a different angle. The cop's reaction is amazing. So the guy gets punched. We can't tell why he went to the ground. It was because of the punch or the cops threw him on the ground. The guy doing the punching doesn't get arrested. The guy that got punched uh, is, again, manhandled and thrown out of there. The good news is, finally, this guy was arrested. John McGraw, 78, of Linden, North Carolina, has been charged with assault and battery and disorderly conduct, the news station said on its website. The incident on Wednesday night in Fayetteville was caught on video by bystanders. But we're not done yet. You want to see what else John McGraw said on tape after he punched the guy? Watch this. Did you like the event? You bet I liked it. Yeah? What'd you like about it? Knocking the hell out of that big mouth. We don't know who he is, but we know he's not acting like an American. So you deserved it? Every bit of it. What was that? Yes, he deserved it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. We Look, man, uh, Trump keeps saying these rallies are fun. That's not fun. That's super dangerous. I, I want to end on another veteran, uh, this veteran who at another rally had participated in shouting at a young black woman. His name is Al Bamberger, and he was in Korea, and he got caught up in this atmosphere and wound up shouting down and pushing a young uh, black woman uh, woman who was a protester at a, at a different rally. And he said, as to why he did it, now he says he's totally embarrassed. And he says, quote, Trump kept saying, get them out, get them out. And people in the crowd began pushing and shoving the protesters. Unfortunately, a lot of this behavior was happening right, right next to me where I was. And he says he just got wrapped up in that moment and wound up pushing the woman too. And now he says he's mortified by it. And he found out that the guys who were pushing her Next to him were white nationalists. He's like, I'm not with those guys. What have I done? And he says, quote, I have embarrassed myself, my family, and veterans. This was a very unfortunate incident, and it is my sincere hope that I can be forgiven for my actions. See, I give you that quote because this is what happens in a mob. This is what they call a mob mentality. All of a sudden, Trump is saying, get him out, get him out. And you're riled up, and people are pushing back and forth. And next thing you know, this guy who, under different circumstances, wouldn't have done any of that, is assaulting someone in a way that's, according to him at least, out of his character. That's what happens when fascism starts to rise. So, as you see people talking about killing people, proud that they're assaulting him and hitting him, and we're on a different plane here. This is bad, bad news. I want to give credit to Rod Weber and all the people who have been covering this and, uh, and all the people who have pressed charges, because if we don't bring uh, law and order and the rule of law back in charge here, this thing can get out of hand and real quick.
you've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the call for a voting renaissance and mass nonviolent mobilization to stand up to Trump. First, we thought it was a publicity stunt or maybe an art project or something. Then we told ourselves that no one would vote for him anyways and laughed at his absurdity. And then one day we woke up to find that he is the clear front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. Donald Trump, the crass, loudmouth reality TV show star slash fascist, now has a real shot at becoming the next president of the United States, and it's not funny anymore. From the moment he began his campaign, Trump's hateful rhetoric has stoked the embers of racism, bigotry, violence, fascism, misogyny, and xenophobia in our country, and brought a full-fledged fire of hatred roaring back to life. This week, MoveOn.org, in collaboration with other progressive organizations, published an open letter to the American public on Medium.com, calling for a movement of citizens to unite in standing up to Trump's hateful and dangerous rhetoric, saying, quote, we cannot afford to to underestimate him until it's too late, as many Republicans now regret having done during the primaries. If we wait to see how things shake out to make our plans, it'll be too late, and November will come sooner than anyone thinks, unquote. The campaign is calling for three types of local and personal actions to stop Trump. One, nonviolent mobilization and organizing against his hate rhetoric in your city streets, on social media, and in letters to the editor. Two, asking every media outlet, corporation, and office holder from the school board on up to Congress and from your local news up to cable news to condemn Trump's racism, misogyny, and xenophobia that was born out of an environment they helped create. And three, a voting renaissance to stop Trump and build an even more powerful progressive majority, an effort that requires massive volunteer power to door knock, phone bank, and have real conversations with all types of voters. The open letter concludes by saying, quote, If we stand together in this moment across movements and build together, we will not only stop Trump, but continue to create a country that protects and respects the dignity and humanity of all people and allows us all to prosper and thrive, unquote. The segment notes include all of the links to this letter and related information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if standing up to fascism is of at least a passing interest to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about this campaign's call to action via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. If we stand up together, we have the power to make Donald Trump the thing he hates the most, a loser. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bow, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. We turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's a reporter who writes regularly for The Nation. He's also the author of seven books, including The American Way of Poverty, How the Other Half Still Lives, and an amazing memoir, The House of 20,000 Books. He also teaches writing at UC Davis. Sasha Abramsky, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Well, you reported 
recently in the nation that Trump is, quote, bringing out of the woodwork every crank and fanatic in the country. I know you talked to some of the cranks and fanatics. Where did you find them, and what did they tell you? You know, unfortunately, I didn't have to look very hard. I went to Sparks, just outside Reno in Nevada, to cover the caucus there. And I went to the First Baptist Church, which was a suburban church. Seven precincts were caucusing there. And I just started asking people, who are you going to vote for? And if they said they were voting for Trump, I started asking them very particular questions around immigration and around what they saw, thought of Muslims. And the reason I did that was Trump's obviously got a tremendous following, at least based in part on the fact that he plays a very demagogic game when it comes to the southern border with Mexico and when it comes to America's relationship with the Muslim world and with Muslims living in America. So I started asking people what they thought, and not just a couple, but one after another after another, the default position was all Muslims should be expelled from America. And a goodly number of the people I talked to said they should be given a choice of being executed or being deported. Ugh. And you hear language like this, and it's the language of fascism. It's the language of the pogrom from out of the 1930s in Europe. It's the language of sort of the pre-Hitler years when all of the certainties of Weimar democracy began crumbling, and you could start saying anything and thinking anything and doing anything, and the political structures had no ability in place to push back. And what I saw in Nevada began to terrify me, because I think what has happened with the Trump campaign is he's given the okay Anybody and everybody who's angry to voice their bigotries in a way that it hasn't been okay to do for decades in this country. Tell us a little bit about the people that you talked to at the caucus who were who were Trump supporters. Did you find out anything about who they were or what they did? Well, several of them were retirees, and certainly the most extreme person I talked to was a man in his 70s. And he was a retired, I believe he was a businessman of some sort or a carpenter, I can't remember. Um, but he was absolutely adamant that the choice should be what he called the trench or deportation. And when I said, what do you mean by the trench? He said execution. Um, I spoke to a young elementary school teacher. I spoke to a number of middle-aged people. The thing that I found was an awful lot of people I talked to were absolutely infuriated with the breakdown of the political system. They were infuriated by the paralysis in D.C. They were infuriated by the dysfunction of governing structures in this country. And all of that anger, which could be channeled to progressive politics, it could be channeled to some kind of alternative, better vision. At the moment, because of the way the Republican primaries are playing out, at the moment, all of that anger is giving momentum to a nativist, populist bully who uses the language of the Iron Fist. It's, it's, it's the most extraordinary moment in American politics. One more question about your interviews with Trump supporters in Nevada. What did they know about you? They, they knew that I was writing for a magazine, and they knew nothing else. They did ask me, several did ask me if I was Jewish, based on my name. I've, I've been asked that question before in settings in journalism, but it's always discomforting when somebody wants to know who you are ethnically before they start talking with you. It means that what they're trying to do is ferret out, are you, quote-unquote, one of us? And that's the politics of absolute division. Um, now, you've belatedly seen a few Republicans sort of in a sputtering kind of way 
start to critique this language. Mitt Romney started critiquing this language. Some of the governors have started and a few of the senators. But the overwhelming majority of elected officials in the Republican Party are not using the language to call out Trump. What they're doing is they're saying they don't like him. They're saying he's a bit of a buffoon or a clown. But they're not using the language that says this man is a fascist that he's coddling the support of white supremacists, that he's not really disavowing the support of the KKK, or if he does so, it's only after a firestorm of criticism, that he gets the support of the French fascist leader, Jean-Marie Le Pen, and he doesn't disavow it, that he gets robocalls from one white supremacist group after another, arguing on his behalf, and he hasn't disavowed that, that at every step of the way, He's playing this double game. He's saying to the Republicans, vote for me because I can create a broad coalition. But he's saying to the white supremacists in code, vote for me because I'll be sympathetic to your values. Well, people like you and me have been saying for weeks the Republicans need to go after uh, Trump directly and uh, aggressively. And, in fact, last week, Marco Rubio did. Marco Rubio in, the, in that uh, debate attack Trump for, among other things, hiring uh, guest workers instead of Americans, for the fact that his ties are made in China. W what did you think of Rubio's attack on well, Trump? It, it, it's far too little, far too late. Rubio was critiquing him on sub-substantive issues, but then at the end of the day, he went on the campaign trail, and he accused Donald Trump of being in his pants, and Donald Trump accused him of sweating too much. And when you get to that point... When you get to a point where political discussion involving leadership of the most powerful country on earth, a country with thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons at its disposal, when you get to the point where the people saying, I'm most qualified to be the candidate for president of that country, are making toilet jokes at each other's expense, it's the ultimate devolution of the political process. And what I wrote a few days ago in The Nation was that this is no longer politics, that it's something approaching pornography masquerading as politics, that this is a theater of spectacle. And it has nothing to do with the political process. It's devolved into a popularity contest. It's devolved into an entertainment spectacle. It's devolved into something much more akin to world wrestling or much more akin to a gladiatorial show than into a discussion of specific policies. And what I argued in The Nation was that means that we're playing two separate games, that on one level we have this very rational conversation about poverty, about climate change, about public health crises, a very cerebral, rational conversation about the issues at the moment. And then on the other hand, we have this grotesque spectacle where Donald Trump is essentially leading this circus, this circus, this circus of spectacle instead of ideas, and one can only imagine what the rest of the world is looking at us like. The rest of the world is thinking this is the most powerful country on earth. This is a country with the nuclear power to annihilate the world. And its political leadership contest has devolved into this sort of pornographic spectacle. It's, as I said, it's the most grotesque thing that I certainly have witnessed as a political journalist. But I suspect when historians write about this 50, 100, 150 years from now, I suspect they will look at this moment with much the same unforgiving lens that historians in recent years have looked at the early 1930s in Germany, as happy people went to the beer halls and voted for fascists without thinking about the implication of what they were doing.
We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks on the penchant for Trump and the GOP base to support the murder of innocent family members of terrorists. Lee Camp on how Donald really needs to pace himself lest he run out of groups to subjugate. David Pakman spoke with Tim Wise about how Trump legitimizes racist ideas and where those ideas come from. Democracy Now! discussed the obvious comparison between Donald Trump and Governor George Wallace. The Young Turks looked at a couple of cases of protesters and journalists being roughed up at a Trump rally. Richard Wolf on Economic Update broke down how and why fascism tends to come to power. The Majority Report examined Trump's response to the violence breaking out at his rallies. The Young Turks examined another instance of violence at a Trump rally and also connected it to the mechanics of mob mentality. Our activism for today is in support of the open letter from MoveOn.org calling for an all-out movement to stop Trump in every way we know how. And finally, we wrapped up with Sasha Abramsky speaking on Start Making Sense, giving us an inside look of the opinions of Trump supporters in an environment of extreme ideas being normalized. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's uh, Patrick uh, from near Dallas. Calling in comment to come out on some of the recent episodes, especially the one on capitalism. And I have to admit, I'm almost 50. I have a visceral response when people talk about socialism. And it's, it basically seems to me something that is not going to work because people have a unwillingness to work for the benefit of others, but they have an inherent willingness to work for the benefit of themselves. And growing up, now maybe it was the media, maybe it was my limited readings, but just over and over reading about failures of the USSR, reading about horrible issues in uh, Communist Asia, Pol Pot, the re-education camps in China, just all of this is the baggage that socialism carries with me and, and many other Americans. However, in the spirit of learning more, like, wait, listen to this and learn more, and um, frankly, I have too. I used to be a lot more conservative and a lot more aligned with a lot of things that Wade started with. I've been listening to some of uh, Professor Wolf's podcast available at rdwolf.com or democracyatwork.info. And in following some of those, I've come to understand that they're not trying to set up necessarily a socialist authoritarian government. Uh, They're hoping to expand worker cooperatives and change a capitalist system from the ground up with more worker input and more local control. And I don't know if this can work, um, it, but it seems to be an interesting idea to explore, especially given the success of worker co-ops in Mondragon and some of the places in Spain. And I think it's interesting to see that this is not approaching it from a top-down dictated approach which is where I think a lot of us are coming from, but rather an organic building up from the bottom kind of approach, which to me would have some chance of success. You know, I think that governments tend to be very short-sighted and very very susceptible to pressure, but frankly, that's where we are now with, with the capitalist control of the government and what is essentially a de facto oligarchy, even if it's not a de jure oligarchy. Anyway, it's 
very interesting. I'll be interesting to see where it goes, but I think this helps explain how a lot of us approach this and the concerns that a lot of us, a lot of people who are maybe in your audience, a lot of Americans, have about a possible, you know, when we hear the word socialism, a socialist solution. I don't have a gut feeling that socialism is going to work well. And so I tend to think on the regulating capitalism side. So if we can get money out of politics and capitalism can regulate itself, uh, not regulate itself, but that the people can actually regulate capitalism and you can get markets that are set up to benefit not the capitalist 1%, but the country as a whole, we'd have a better chance of success. But obviously, if the capitalists in control, the top 1% are in control, they're looking at maximizing, you know, short-term corporate profits, which leads largely to them taking American jobs and sending them to China, where they can be done much cheaper, even given the cost of importing in tariffs. And we have to change that. And that's one of the advantage that worker co-ops or things like that have in an American system is that um, workers may be able to see the need for a pay cut. They may figure out a way to do something cheaper, but no one in a worker-driven co-op is going to vote to export all of their woodworking jobs or car manufacturing jobs to China or Mexico, however cheaply it may be done overseas. Anyway, just following the uh, everything with interest and uh, offering my two cents on why a lot of people have a gut reaction. Thanks. Hey, Jay. Driven from San Jose calling, wanting to weigh in on Trey's comments about getting offended. And I guess the first thing I wanted to say was that the notion of impartiality is directly linked to privilege. So if you're like coming from a pr perspective where it's like, oh wow, this person's getting really like intense about this issue, but it's not like you don't feel that same degree of intensity, that's okay, but it might mean that you have some privilege with regards to that issue that you'd want to be aware of. With regards to complaining or resisting conflicting points of view in general, I think it's perfectly normal people to um, resist conflicting points of view, even in a heated or like accusatory sense, depending on the subject in question. You know, it can be said that coming into a debate or a conversation angry or frustrated could not be the best point to begin your argument from. But when it comes to certain issues, sometimes that's all people have available to them, you know, and I think it's something that we're normalized to through our judicial system and school that if you're going to argue with somebody or you're going to express your point of view, if you get mad or sad, it somehow like detracts from your overall argument. But that's literally just taking emotion out of dialogue, which isn't a particularly reasonable or convincing perspective. You know, just because a lawyer or a politician or a judge can say something really vitriolic and fucked up with a level, calm demeanor doesn't mean that that person's argument is better or 
or convincing or people are more likely to be receptive to it. Like, just imagine situations where politicians face perfectly calm, normal things like, you know, today we're giving all of our rights to privacy up to the NSA. Like, people tend to resist that in spirited fashion, you know, and I think that dismissing people's point of view or perspective because they are enraged or sad it shouldn't be an immediate closing off shutting down to the ideas about which they're talking also just deal with it is totally silencing which is also bullying you want to talk about how people say things sometimes that are offensive to you but that, you know, your way of dealing with it is to just, like, ignore it and move on, whatever. Well, A, some people can't do that. And B, just because it's the way that you deal with it doesn't mean that it's the way somebody else should deal with it. And you should, like, open up. And it's, and it's important to, like, open up your perspective enough that you can, like, you can let ideas enter without trying to arbitrarily dismiss them with, without observing the content of what's being said. And just as a final note, taking offense to other people's offense is ironic, to say the least. I am offended that you got offended. That's just circular arguing. And it's not, and I mean, in a rhetorical context, it's not a very, con- it's not very convincing. Just like, you know, most bullying or like arguments that come from a point of bullying like are. They're just, they just hang, they hang on the notion that this person's outrage or anger in response to your outrage and anger is going to silence you. There's no actual content. So thanks for taking the message. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, here's a little bit of uh, background information for you. This usually comes up when I'm talking to people in real life and they're either asking me what I do for a living or they're asking how the show works and, you know, how, how do I manage to uh, put all of it together. I, I will always sort of half jokingly say that my job is to listen to an unhealthy amount of political talk radio. And, you know, as I said, I'm only half joking. I really do think that it's somewhat unhealthy for me to listen to as much political talk radio as I do. But, you know, it's not, it's not that bad. It's, it's not as bad as I uh, like to pretend. But here's the thing. If you have any understanding of what's been going on the last three or four months regarding Donald Trump and the rise of fascism in America and how the media has been reacting to it, then you may have a glimmer of an idea of the sheer amount of content that was available to be considered to be put into today's episode. So, like, for a normal episode... After I've already listened to my regular rotation of all the clips, the you know, all, all of the shows that I listen to, when I actually sit down to make a show, I, I pull all the clips that I have personally found, and then I, you know, I, I vacuum in all of the clips from all my regular sources, uh, all all the clips that they put on YouTube, and then I get them all in a nice categorized stack. And I listen through like two or three times to weed out all of the clips that aren't going to get used and sort of narrow it down to the the final selection. And so like a normal show, I will have anywhere between like three and 10, 10 to 15 hours 
of clips that I can sort of weed through. I, you know, some of my, I listen to a couple of seconds and trash them. And then sometimes I listen to them all the way through, but you know, I, I listen to them at fast speed. You know, I can speed it up to like three or four times their regular speed. And you know, they, everyone sounds like chipmunks and I can't understand exactly what's being said, but I can follow along enough to know like, is this even in the realm of what I'm looking for? Yes. All right. Like I'll listen again or no trash with Trump's show. There was like, I don't know, 35, 40 hours of content to listen to. And so instead of being able to sort of speed through it in like an afternoon, I've been listening to clips about Trump and the rise of fascism for three straight days now. And that was before I had to sit down and actually edit it all together. All of this is just to say that uh, I don't feel very good. <laughs> but speaking of unhealthy ways to spend your time, please do not spend three straight days listening to nothing but clips of Donald Trump being a fascist. Uh, I, I highly recommend against that. Th- this is one of those times it's like if I had a physical address, like a P.O. box that I didn't, didn't mind giving out, like this would be the moment that I would start asking for gift baskets because I, I – need some recovery time and and this this weekend coming up is like the most well-earned weekend uh, I can remember having. So that's how things are for me. Uh for the show, you may have noticed we have big news coming up. Uh we're about to hit episode number 1000. It's only taken a little bit more than a decade to get to this point and I don't know like couple of weeks ago, I had an idea of, of what I should do about that, and then I sort of forgot about it until now. But if you would like to call into the show and just like say something about that, like how and when did you find the show? What has it done for you? Has it changed your mind about anything? Has it had any, any sort of you know measurable impact on your life? If you, if you feel like sharing a story like that, then, you know, and of course you hear me saying this within, you know, just the next few days before episode 1000 drops, uh, please go ahead and give a call, tell your story, and we'll see if I can create a little montage of listener reactions to episode number 1000. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, please set it to see our content first so you can easily share all the great content we're pushing out there. And then for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry in shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past